Thanks, band. Good morning, everyone. My name is Peter Carlson. As I take a drink of water after all that singing. Uh, welcome to Hiawatha Church. Thanks for being here with us today. I'm really glad that um, you made your way here. Um, I'm the worship pastor here, and you're kind of coming in during a uh, preacher's carousel, if you will. We're kind of all taking turns uh, doing the sermons in these few weeks here in the summer as um, Pastor Chris gets a little bit of a break from preaching, and Pastor Spencer's on sabbatical, and so I'm the third in a, in a series of five uh, that will rotate through. It's, it's kind of great to hear different voices saying the same thing uh, up here, and we're in the middle of a sermon series uh, on the book of 1 Timothy. The 1 Timothy is a book in the New Testament that uh, we're right in the middle of, and if you haven't come to any of the previous Sundays where we've covered the first half of the book, that's fine, because we're right here in the middle, and there's kind of a reset happening. When you read the passage with me today, you'll see that the, the stage kind of gets reset and, uh, and then moves forward towards the end of the book. So this is a really good time to be here, and First Timothy is actually a letter. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a guy named Timothy, and Timothy was a pastor in the city of Ephesus, and Paul is writing him a letter. He's doing some coaching, some mentoring, telling him about some things uh, of how to be a leader in the church, and that's where we, where we are right now. Today's sermon is titled, The Mystery of Godliness, and we're going to be in chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. But before we open that up, I want you to know a little bit about me. Um, <clears throat> I'm a worship pastor here, but Monday through Friday, I am a supply chain manager at the Estee Lauder Companies, and that's my job. And uh, when I was a kid, I didn't have my sights set on a job like that. The first career path that I really hoped to take was garbage man. Like any kid, right, wanted to be... I don't know how it happened, really. I don't know. I think garbage men looked really cool to me when I was a little kid. But the second career path that I set my sights on was detective, because I really, really liked detective stories when I was a kid. So I would read a lot of Encyclopedia Brown books, Hardy Boys books, eventually Sherlock Holmes. I watched a lot of Scooby-Doo. It's my favorite cartoon of all time. Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? is the great one. Um, and watching shows like Ghost Rider. I don't think anybody at first service knew what Ghost Rider is. So kids of the 90s on PBS, there was a show called Ghost Rider, and it was awesome. Um, and all of these mystery things, I really liked it. Um, at one point, as a young man, I legitimately wanted to buy one of those Sherlock Holmes hats and wear it around, and thank goodness they don't sell them everywhere, because I would have had one, and there would have been a photo to show. But there isn't, so it didn't happen. But I was really interested in this. I did, for a while, carry around a notebook in my pocket and a pencil, just, you know, clues, if you need it, write a clue, clue down. I was ready. Um, but I was really into this stuff, and um, eventually kind of grew out of reading those books and started watching things like X-Files or, you know, Broadchurch on Netflix, things like that. Mystery stories are everywhere. It's a whole genre. It's very popular. People like it. We like stories that are kind of about the unknown, right? And you're in the middle of the story and you're trying to figure out what is going on, what's happening, who done it. And in the end, hopefully, <laughs> the truth comes out. Either the detective is really good and they solve the case and there's kind of this big reveal, or the detective is not so good and it's more of a subversive story that the truth just kind of gets revealed and you're like, oh, that's what it was all along. I get it now. Um, but these are really popular, right? These shows are all over the place. And so today, the mystery of godliness. What, it, what is that? What's going on? Paul is going to reveal it to Timothy in today's passage, what the mystery of godliness is all about. But before he does that, like I said, he kind of resets the stage in this book a little bit, okay? And that's where we're going to start. Paul is going to restate kind of the central axle of this whole letter and, and reset. So here's verses 14 and 15. We're going to start here. 
Paul writes and he says, Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So right here we just get a reminder. This is a letter. This is literally a letter that Paul sat down and wrote to Timothy, and we kind of break that wall a little bit and see like he's saying, I'm writing to you right now, I'm writing this to you, because I want to see you in person, but I understand that sometimes things happen, I get delayed, I'm a busy guy, I might not be there soon, and so if I do get delayed, I'm sending this letter because I have really important stuff for you that I don't want to delay. I want to send this to you anyway. And Paul has been coaching and encouraging Timothy about church life, how to lead, things like that. Being a mentor and imparting this wisdom. And so now he says, I'm, I'm sending this to you now. It's too important to wait. Maybe today this would be like sending a text to someone and be like, look, I haven't left yet. I know I'm running a little late, but I, there's something really important that I want to tell you, and I don't want you to wait for me to get there. Order the chicken sandwich for me so it's there when I get there. That kind of thing. But this is way more important than a dinner order, right? This is way more important. Paul is writing this to Timothy and saying, I've got really important stuff for you. Okay? If I delay, I want you to know what? I want you to know how one ought to behave in the household of God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So this is about how to behave in the household of God. And Paul uses two different pictures of the church because the household of God is the church. And so he's talking to Timothy about how to lead in the church, how to behave in the church, and he gives him two pictures that help him understand, well, what is the church? How am I supposed to be thinking about a church and leading a church. So we're going to look at these two images of the church first, and then we'll move on to this mystery of godliness, okay? So the first picture that Paul gives is that the church is the household of God. The church is the household of God. In the previous passage from last week that Chris Thompson preached on, this, this verse came up where he talks about the household again. He says, a church elder or pastor must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church, God's household? So Paul is setting this up and saying the church is like a family. The church is like a household, all that comes with it. Okay, so what is a church? A church is like a family. All right, well, what's a family? I mean, we, we know, but what is it? It's people in tight relationship with each other. People who are different and yet very much the same. I think we all probably can think of family members that we have that are very different from us, but we're connected to each other because we're family. Family is connected. Have you ever gotten into, I think this is something that happens like in your late 30s, early 40s, really get into genealogy and you're like, yes, I'm doing this genealogy. We're diving all the way in. I'm doing the ancestry.com thing. People get into this, right? And you sort of start webbing out this family tree. My grandfather passed away in the late 90s, but he was really into this before the internet. And so he like combed through library books and library records and church records and, you know, cemeteries and built this big family tree that, that we have now. And it's incredible to just look at the sheer volume of people that you, one person, is related to. Very far branching. It webs out. And when we say related, right, it's saying we're in a relationship with them, with this, 
this family. And the tree, a family tree, just shows that visually. And I think there are three main ways that we get to be related to a family, okay? There's maybe the most obvious one, and that's related by blood, right? We're all born. None of us are clones. We were all born. This really happened. And we were born into a family that's our immediate family, and we're related by blood. Here's a picture of my immediate family. So it's my two parents and my two brothers and me. We're related by blood to each other. My brothers and I share some DNA. People can do these tests now. I'm like, yep, you're related to him. That's in our DNA. We didn't choose it. We can't change it. That's just the reality. Even if we're somehow severed from our blood family, we still actually carry that genetic connection forever. That's part of who we are. That's part of being related by blood to a family, right? That makes sense. But if you look at a family tree, there's other ways to get related. Another one is marriage. We can be related by marriage, right? So as you look at the tree, you're like, well, my aunt is not actually blood-related to me because she married my uncle who is blood-related to me, but we're now connected, and she's on the family tree. You got in-laws, right? Connected by marriage. Here's a picture of my in-laws. This is Becky's family. So when Becky and I got married, these people from the Rutka family kind of became part of my family. I'm not blood-related to them, but they are family to me because we're related by marriage. They were, I was grafted into their family tree just like Becky was grafted into my family tree. Becky took the name Carlson when we got married, became part of my family like that. So not by blood, but by what? By marriage. And what is marriage? It's love and choice. Someone loved another person. Becky and I loved each other and chose to put our family trees together and overlap them in that way brought in by love and by choice, okay? So marriage, drawing these new horizontal lines on a family tree, okay? So we got blood, we got marriage, and then there's another way, right? There's adoption. Adoption. Some people are brought into families through adoption. It's similar to marriage. It's, again, a choice of love, a choice of love for another person to bring them into a family that they were not born into, that they were not blood-related to, maybe very different from, but it's a choice to just pull them in and then document it, you know, legal adoption, document this person who's not blood-related to me is now my child, the exact same as if they were my biological child. And then, you know, honestly, sometimes we have informal adoptions as well, where you say, well, there's a person who's not part of my family, but I'm, I'm actually just accepting them as though they were part of my family. Maybe it's not a kid. Maybe it's another peer who, who doesn't have much of a family. Like, this person is coming to all our Thanksgivings and Christmases. They're essentially part of our family. We are just deciding that that is the case. I actually have kind of a situation like this. So this is me and my two brothers. And then there's another guy who looks a little different from us. Um, we had some really close family friends when we were growing up. Uh, in Rochester. Their dad was a doctor at the Mayo Clinic, and at one point, he got a job back in Japan, where they're from, and they moved back. But then the, one of their kids, Tasuku Nishino here, wanted to come back to the U.S. to do high school and college, and we said, well, he can live with us. So for a number of years, I had this, like, bonus brother living across the hall from me that I wasn't related to, 
but we sort of just adopted him into our family for, for that time. Here he is at my wedding. He was, he was the best man in my, in my brother's wedding. He is basically part of our family. Informally, not literally legally adopted, but he is part of our family. He was there for Thanksgiving and Christmas and the whole, the whole thing. And I know we have lots of families here at Hiawatha who have legally adopted kids, and we have lots of families who, who said, yeah, there's a person that is just part of my family, even though they're not blood-related to me. They're not married in. We just decided they're, they're in. They're part of my family now. That is pretty cool. It's beautiful. So you've got blood, you've got marriage, you've got adoption. These are ways to get into a family tree, right? I think we understand this. But none of these types of family connection are easy all the time. I'm not saying that. And some of us maybe know this more than others, but family is not easy. What if we don't like our blood relatives? What if we just don't like them? We just don't like them. Or what if we like them, but we're just, we just don't really fit in with them? Like, yeah, I like them, but when we get together, I don't know what to do. They, I don't, we just don't have commonality there. That's possible, too. Or what if we're in an up, unhappy marriage? Or what if our marriage ends? What if we get divorced? That's hard. Or what if adoption has been part of our story, but it's been really, really difficult for us as parents or really difficult for us as someone who was adopted and struggles with some identity over that? What if when we web out our family tree and stand back and look at it, we say, man, it looks rough. It's kind of jagged. It's kind of ragged. It looks like it's been heavily pruned. It doesn't look pretty. It makes me a little uncomfortable to look at my family tree like that. Let me just tell you, that's normal. (laughs) It's really normal for a family. It's hard. Family is hard. And Paul is saying, church is like a family. And he's not saying that it's not hard. He's saying it is hard. Church can be hard. Church is the household of God, but we're humans with sin problems. We hurt each other sometimes. We don't always get along. We're different from each other. But there's really good news at the same time. And that news is that God is a perfect father to his imperfect household. So even though it's hard, we have a father who is absolutely perfect and unites us together to make a household. And he loves us. The church is related by blood. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus' blood spilled to give us new life, to make us part of his family. Just like when we were born, it was a bloody and difficult affair for our mothers. Even more so was it a bloody and difficult affair for Jesus to bring us into his family by his blood. And again, we did not choose it. It was given to us. We received it. And now, as Christians, it's coded into us. Not into our cells. Our cells will evaporate and be gone someday. But into our souls, our eternal souls, are imprinted with Christ's blood when we believe. And we're given a name, just like when we were born. We're given a a name that's permanent. It's not written on a birth certificate. It's written in the book of life, Revelation says. The book gets opened up and there's names there because we were born into God's family through his blood, better blood than the blood you're related to your earthly family with. The church is also related by marriage. Book of Revelation gives this this picture, a vision for, for the disciple John where someone says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb, that's Jesus, has come 
And his bride, that's the church, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So Jesus is like a bridegroom and we are like a bride, the Bible says. Jesus loves us and he chooses us to make us a part of his family. He accepts us for who we are. He gives us his name. He purifies us from our sin. He looks at you, Christian, like a love-struck newlywed looks at their brand new spouse. Utter joy and devotion. It's beautiful. And his love never fades. It never grows old. And he will never divorce his bride or cheat on her, ever. He's perfect. And he demonstrates that love. He doesn't just say it. He demonstrates it by going to the cross, by dying for us to make us pure. So when we go to a wedding and they say, till death do us part with Jesus, forget that. Neither death nor life nor angels nor demons can separate you from the love of God. There is no death to part you. Jesus has died and come back already. It's a better marriage than an earthly marriage can be. We can be related to the church by marriage, to Jesus. And then lastly, by adoption, 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Jesus finds needy children. He finds outsiders who don't have a family and loves them enough to add them to his household. He takes someone outside, different, altogether different from himself, and makes them a full member of his family, a full son, a full daughter, with everything that comes from it. Everything that comes from it. The Bible talks about salvation like it's an inheritance. Like you, will, you might receive an inheritance when your parents die. These adopted children receive the inheritance of salvation. When Jesus died, it's already happened. Jesus has died. The inheritance is now ours. We're written into his will. It's a better adoption than what we can see on earth. And through the church, he gives his adopted children new brothers and sisters that they didn't have before. He gives us new spiritual parents or grandparents in the church, older Christians that we're not related to that say, you are part of my family. I'm like a grandmother or grandfather to you. I love you like that. That happens here at Hiawatha Church. Family is a wonderful and beautiful thing, especially the family of God that we see depicted here. And everyone desires deep down or maybe not so deep, to be part of a family, to belong to a family. And God gives it to us in the church. It's happening right here in this body of believers at Hiawatha Church. If you look around the room today, you see a spiritual family, a household of God that he has assembled. It's incredible. We just sang about it and look what, look what God has done. We were orphans without hope. Now his children, every age, every race, we're united in Christ. He imprints that on us, and it can never be taken away. doesn't just mean when you're in this room. It means when you're out and about the city, you're part of God's family. If you move away from this city, you're still connected to the family of God forever. And if you're not a believer yet, just know God invites you today to be part of his family. He wants a relationship with you And he wants you to have a relationship with other believers in a church, in his family, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's amazing. You can be part of that family 
when you believe. So the church is like a family, okay? First image, church is like a family, the household of God. And then the second one is, Paul says, the church is like a pillar and buttress of the truth. If you don't know what a buttress or a pillar is, you probably know a pillar, but architects will tell you, pillars and buttresses are extremely important, especially in really large, really heavy buildings. Pillars hold up a roof, and buttresses, like these flying buttresses, hold up heavy walls, making sure that the structure stays up. Without pillars, a roof would fall in. Without buttresses, these walls would just collapse. So he says we're, we're like a family, and he says we're also given a purpose. The purpose here is be a pillar and buttress of the truth. Okay, okay, so got it. What's this truth? What are we supposed to be pillaring and buttressing up? And the truth that he's referring to is the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, which just means the good news about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. That Jesus was born, that he walked the earth, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again, and that if we believe, we'll have eternal life. That's the gospel, okay? This is the truth that Paul says we need to uphold as a, as a body of believers. He, he trusts this really important gospel message to the messed up family that he's put together in churches. Clumsy, selfish, flawed Christians, he gives them this extremely important treasure, this truth. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay, brittle, really bad place to put a treasure, but we have it now in a jar of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So this idea of being a pillar and a buttress of the truth is, is really from God. The power comes from God, but Paul is saying we are supposed to hold up the truth, be an advocate for the gospel, rally around the gospel, hold up above our heads this gospel truth. Okay, so what does it look like? I, I get it, the truth, the gospel, we've heard it a lot. What does it look like? I thought we were talking about how do we behave in the church? How can we be this pillar and buttress? How can we show the world? Okay, Paul's putting that question on the table here to Timothy. I want you to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth, and then he, there's a pause. So what do we think comes next? Where is Paul going to go next? If we're talking about how to behave in the context of a church, what's Paul going to give us next? Is he going to give us a code of conduct? Here's the code of conduct. Is he going to give us a lifestyle requirements list? Is he going to put up a sign of house rules like a family might put on the wall? No whining. Pick up after yourself. Always use kind words. Dad gets to sample all orders of fries. House rules. Is Paul going to do that? No, he's not going to do that. So what is Paul going to give us next? He's going to give us the mystery of godliness. Okay, verse 16, Paul starts out, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Oh, we got a mystery on our hands. It looks like there's a mystery afoot, gang. What are we doing here? All right, this is where we're getting excited because Paul's like, you have a really important job, but what it is, it's a mystery. It's the mystery of godliness. Well, godliness is how we're supposed to be, right? We're supposed to be godly people. And he's saying it's a mystery, so it looks like we're going to need to solve something here. And I like this. I like this a lot. Well, Paul actually uses the word mystery a lot in his books. And it's maybe not the way you think of mystery today. 
Here's an example of another place where Paul writes the word mystery. At the end of the book of Romans, he says, Now, to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed. You see, the mystery of the Bible, the mystery of godliness, has already been revealed. It's already been disclosed to us. The mystery of the Bible comes in the Old Testament where we don't really get the answer. We don't know what it all means. So think of mystery as something that that was hidden but now has been revealed. Something we're not able to discover on our own. That's why it was revealed. It was handed to us. God chose to unveil it to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Think about the disciples during Jesus' earthly ministry. They're walking around with Jesus. They're listening to him talk all the time. And then you get these little vignettes where they're like, hey, Jesus, I don't understand any of it. I've been with you for two years and I do not get it. Could you explain it a little more clearly? And it happens all the time. You see them, you know, trying to puzzle this out, trying to solve the mystery. Who, what is he here to do? And sometimes they, they'll sit down and say like, are you going to overthrow Rome? Are you going to become the new governor in this area? Are, are you going to teach us? Are you just a good teacher? Are you a political ladder so I could like be a vice governor or like a vice king? When you, when you take power, is that something that I could get? Or are you, are you like a prophet who's been reborn? Is that a thing? Are you just like a magician? Are you some sort of like bread vending machine? I'm, I'm really trying to figure all this out. And years go by and they're so confused. And then in the end, right before his death, they start to understand. And then when he dies and rises again, it's like it all crystallizes for them. And they're like, oh, now I see. Now I see when I look back all those things that you said, it makes sense. I finally understand because the mystery has now been fully revealed to them. And Paul is going to elaborate on this mystery that's now been revealed in this next section. And this next section, it reads like a hymn or a poem or a creed. And a lot of people think this is actually like a verse from an early, early first century hymn that people would sing or that they would recite to one another in churches. So here's, here's what comes next. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, colon. Here it is. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. There. That's it. That's the mystery of godliness. I just wrote, he just wrote it out. So the big reveal here is that the mystery of godliness doesn't actually have that much to do with your godliness. It has everything to do with Jesus and his own godliness. See, all this talk about behavior in the church doesn't actually hinge on us and on our actions. The truth that we're holding up, the truth of the gospel, is not about our behavioral merit. It's about what he's done. It's not about a lifestyle. It's about what he, how he lived and how he died. What we rally around, what we hold up, it's not a list of Ten Commandments that we all need to follow or else we get kicked out. That's the Old Testament. That's how the Old Testament reads. That's the mystery. That's the shrouded, veil, veiled answer. But now, on this side of the cross, when we read the Old Testament, when we read the Ten Commandments, 
instead of being this big heavy load on us, the Ten Commandments now read like this. Jesus had no other gods before his father. Jesus did not take God's name in vain. Jesus kept the Sabbath, the the true Sabbath, laying in a grave dead for a whole Sabbath day and then walking out of the tomb again. Jesus kept the Sabbath. Jesus honored his father in the garden when Jesus prays, Father, not my will, but your will be done, honoring his heavenly father. Jesus did not kill. Jesus did not commit adultery. Jesus did not steal. Jesus did not lie. Jesus did not covet. The mystery of godliness is about Jesus' godliness. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the godliness of Jesus now resides within us, his church, because he resides within us, his church. And how we behave in the church flows out of that truth that he is in us. And this mystery was not solved by humanity. It was just revealed by God in Jesus. It was demonstrated at the cross, at the empty tomb. It wasn't solved by us. It's not a mystery that we need to keep puzzling on. If you want a mystery, try to erase the New Testament from your brain and just read the Old Testament. There's your mystery. That will not make sense. How can we be saved? How could a dead person live again? How could a wretched sinner be made into a son or daughter of a pure and holy God? How could a lifetime of sin be canceled in a moment and forgotten? That is a mystery that the Old Testament poses to us. And it brings confusion and sadness and angst. But the mystery is revealed at the cross. All the mysteries and promises of God find their yes, their answer, their solution in Christ. And that's why Paul directs Timothy to the gospel of Jesus Christ here when he's talking about how to behave in the church. This mystery of the incarnation of God adding humanity to his divinity and walking among us and eating with us and touching us and washing our feet and dying our death for us. It's his godliness. It's his humanity coming together to save us from our sins at the cross. The mystery has been revealed. This mystery isn't about who committed a murder. It's about who brought dead people to life. It's not about who stole something valuable. It's about who gave something of infinite value away. It's not about who kidnapped someone from their family. It's about who took people with no family and gave them a perfect loving family forever. That's Jesus who did that. He is the answer to those mysteries. And it's beautiful. There's no more mystery for us to go trying to solve in the Bible. The Bible sets up a mystery and then it reveals the solution when you read to the end of the book or when you just flip to the back and read it first. Because some people do that with their mystery books and that's totally fine when it comes to the Bible. That's fine. The invitation now is not to go look for a different answer. The invitation is to dig deeper into the revealed answer. Don't set it aside or try to decode something else from the Bible. It's been revealed. When you watch a a mystery movie like like Knives Out, which is a great, great mystery movie, and it's really complex and you're so confused in the end, like it all comes to light and you understand who did what, and you're like, wow. What you don't do is go back to the beginning and be like, let's figure out a new way that this works. There's no other way. (laughs) It was all written and revealed. There's no other person that did the crime. You saw it. It happened. So when we go back and try to read the Bible and find something else, it's just, it's just backwards. It doesn't make any sense. Paul says, 
The revealed mystery is great. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. Jesus was manifested in the flesh. That means he became a man. He was vindicated by the Spirit. That means that the Spirit allowed him to rise from the dead because he was sinless. He did not need to die. He was seen by angels at the resurrection. He was proclaimed among the nations from the book of Acts till today, right now in this room. He was believed on in the world. People heard and they believed. And Jesus was taken up into glory in heaven where he is now, alive. Incredible how great is this revealed mystery of godliness that God became a man and died for us. It's incredible. It's amazing. It's great. But there might be some of you in the room that's like, yep, I totally get it, but this to me is basic kindergarten Christianity. I know John 3.16. I get it. What's next? What else is there? But I would encourage you to think, this is, this is like an ocean in a teacup. This mystery, this incredible revealed mystery is great. And Jesus says in his ministry, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The gospel is simple for children to grasp, yet often hand-waved away by many brilliant adults who say, yeah, 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 I know. I got it. I've heard it. I've been going to church forever. I get it. But I need something to like sink my teeth into. I need something that's like revolutionary. I need something that's like going to change the world, like something that's going to really shake up society. I, want, I need to know what comes after that. I need to know what comes after I believe in Jesus. What else? And resist that. Because this is great. The mystery of godliness is exceedingly great. Listen to this quote from the great preacher, Charles Spurgeon. He, he says things way better than I ever could, so I'm just going to put this quote up here and read this. It's incredible. He says, There is no room for indifference where the gospel is concerned. It's either the most astounding impostures or the most amazing of revelations. No man can safely remain undecided about it. It is too weighty. It is too solemn to be snuffed at as a matter of no concern. Then he says this, When I'm preaching the gospel, many may say, Oh, He's only telling us commonplace truth. Just so, I know that. And yet, I feel within myself as if I was wheeling up God's great cannon, which will blow the gates of hell to pieces yet. This plain truth that God was made flesh and dwelt among us is God's great battering ram against which nothing can stand. The gospel changes the world because the gospel changes people on the inside, at the deepest level. And that's why the pastors here at Hiawatha and the elders and overseers at Hiawatha preach the gospel of Christ like this every week. It's not commonplace truth. It's not just plain truth alone. It's the ultimate truth. It's the cure for the disease that we're all sick with. If someone was sick and dying from a disease and weak, and there's a cure for it, and they go to the doctor, and the doctor said, oh, I see you're very weak and near death's door, and I have the cure, and it's free, but um, let's start talking about 30 minutes of exercise a day, and eating fewer carbs, and drinking less Mountain Dew. Let's start there. Wouldn't that person be like, no, I can't hardly walk, and you have the free cure. Why wouldn't you just give it to me now? Why would someone go to church and start asking for other things? 
when the cure itself is the gospel that we need every day, every week, forever. And the reality is, and we're going to see it in the passage right after this one next week, Paul's going to write that there are lots of people in the church that are turning away from holding up the truth of the gospel, from being a pillar and a buttress, and doing other things, and saying, actually, we need to talk a lot more about food restrictions. Actually, we need to talk a lot more about how not being married is better. That's what we really need to hold up as a church. And it's sad, but that happens all the time. It doesn't always have to be food restrictions, but there are so many Christians who find themselves saying, I understand the gospel so well that I'm ready for something else. I'm ready for this mystery story to have a different ending. There is no different ending. It's the gospel. The gospel is the truth that we need to be holding up. It's the roof over our heads here. Without it, churches spiritually crumble and begin to stop proclaiming it out in the world, and then nations stop believing it. There is no other gospel. The gospel is the revealed mystery of God. It's the great battering ram against the gates of hell. There's nothing else. There's no code of conduct. It's this. Jesus was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's it. That's the gospel. That is the great mystery of the godliness of Jesus flowing to his people in the church. So how are we to behave? It rests on this. How are we to behave? Let's conclude. Be a family. Be the household of God. Treat one another like brothers and sisters in Christ because you are related by blood, the blood of Jesus, related by the marriage of the Lamb, adopted into his family. Treat one another like brothers and sisters and thank God that he has assembled this family to be part of. Hold up the truth of the gospel together. Now that you're a family of God, standing side by side with your brothers and your sisters, hold up the truth of the gospel together. Believe the good news of what Christ has done. Think less about what you've done and think more about what Christ has done for you, for us. Dig deeper into the gospel. Don't set it aside and search for something else that you think will change your life or the world. It's the gospel. It's Christ and his godliness. And then just cling to Jesus, the revealed mystery of godliness. Cling to him. Believing in Jesus and his work is how we behave in the church, is how we act in the church and in the world. The godliness of Christ is the headwaters from which the river of godliness flows into us and fills us up. That's it. So believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. Cling to Jesus. Look around at the family of God and be a part of it. I invite you today to be a part of this family. If you're not a believer, today could be the day to be loved and accepted like this into God's family and cling to Jesus and his gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for what you've done for us. Thank you that you do not leave us in some sort of mystery state where we need to do all this work, all this puzzling out to figure out what, what we need to do, but instead you just reveal it to us. You give it to us. You bring us into your family by your blood, costly blood. And you have us hold the truth of the gospel aloft. Though we're weak, though we don't always do this well, though we don't always get along, you unify us 
You unify us around the one thing that will change the world, and that is your gospel. So today I pray that you would help us to believe that. Spirit, soften our hearts. Turn us towards you and away from ourselves. Help us see the goodness, the greatness of your godliness revealed to us at the cross. In your name, amen.